Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This episode of Garden DC, I'm joined by Matthew Millage. He is a horticulturist with the U.S. National Arboretum in Washington, D.C., and we're going to talk all about camellias today. Welcome, Matt. Good morning, Kathy. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm excited to talk a little bit about one of my favorite plants at the U.S. National Arboretum. Perfect. So before we dive into all things Camellia, let's talk a little bit about you, Matt, and how you got to the Arboretum. And let's dial it back all the way to baby Matt. And were you born with chlorophyll in your veins or a green thumb? So it's funny you 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 ask it that way. Uh, to go all the way back, I actually do come from farming roots. My mom grew up on a farm in Iowa. My grandmother still owns it to this day, 94 years old. Someone outside of the family farms it now. My grandfather's since passed away. You know, I, I grew up hearing a lot of stories about being on the farm and going back to Iowa. And my dad's from South Dakota. And, uh, you know, being around a lot of agricultural folks from a very young age. And I then kind of transitioned after school to more of a business background, but working in restaurants. Uh, managing fine dining restaurants in the Washington, D.C. area. So right as the farm-to-table movement was really getting going in the restaurant scene here in D.C., kind of the early 2000s, I was a part of that, and I really just started to miss being part of that side of the production for maybe food is where it kind of got me started. And then uh, went back to school to do some plant science and took an internship actually at the National Arboretum through that and continued my studies. And then that internship fortunately turned into a, a limited job there, which then turned into a full-time job at Smithsonian Gardens, which is where I spent about five years before coming back to the National Arboretum. Got to work with a variety of amazing professionals there in the Ripley Garden and the Enid A. Halp Garden African-American History and Culture Museum. So saw really a, a large variety of landscapes, a huge palette of plants, and really kind of got to really, you know, forgive the pun, but dig in much deeper into horticulture and, and, and the vast array of collections that are offered here in the D.C. public garden arena. Uh, and then got really fortunate that the Arboretum had a position come available, a full-time position, permanent permanent job is one of those government lingo things, but, uh, you know, often there's sometimes limited appointments and sometimes they're permanent. And those are the real coveted positions. And I was fortunate to get into the collection that I've always really loved there, which is the Asian collection at the U S national Arboretum, uh, takes up 14 acres, almost all along the Anacostia river, taking a few different valleys into the collection uh, it broken into a few different parts. And one of them we'll talk about today, which is the Camellia Collection. And then they have a Japanese woodland. We have a Central Asian Valley, which is one of the older portions of the collection, 
which is kind of a mix of plants from both Korea, China, and Japan, and Taiwan. And, uh, and then also there's China Valley, which is, which is almost exclusively for wild collected Chinese material that started to become available after the Sino-American botanical expeditions that started in 1980 and still continue to this day through NACPEC, which is the North American Chinese Plant Expedition Consortium. Uh, and all of that lends to plant material that's able to be put out into this garden stemming from the temperate regions of Asia. Uh, which is conducive here to this temperate region of eastern North America. So we get to talk about lots of fun stuff like disjunct species and and lots of the interesting plants and species that are lesser known and some that are in need of conservation out of regions all over Asia. So just a really interesting and fulfilling plant collection to get to work in daily. And, you know, lending more to our conversation today, there's almost always something in bloom, 12 months a year. And a lot of that is lent to the camellias themselves. Fascinating, Matt. So I was going to say with that China collection and rescuing plants, do you ever get to go over to Asia to get some of those plant collectors? So I currently have not been able to. I started with the Arboretum during COVID. I, I, I should have said in the earlier, I came back about 18 months ago, uh, July of 2020. So I was one of those rare, really lucky people that got to not only keep his job during COVID, but got to change to a job that I've really always wanted. Um, so travel has been really put on pause for that. But Previous to me, just in 2019, actually, a, a group of uh, mostly Chinese, but I, I don't want to discount there may have been some other countries, botanic gardens and universities involved as well from Asia, uh, came to Appalachia and collected plants with folks from the National Arboretum and the Arnold Arboretum and other U.S. institutions as well, I believe. So the work continues on both sides of the Pacific Ocean, which is really neat. And to be even a little more long-winded, my, my huge hope would be that after the pandemic has allowed travel to kind of bounce back to normal and for governments to be able to, you know, lower protocols back for scientific collection, that uh, it's very high on my list to try to get over to China and Japan, Korea, all of the places which we've had the collection presence before. And that would be mostly through the organization I, I mentioned earlier, which would be NACPEC for China specifically. So I, I, I do uh, work to try to establish relationships still with botanic gardens and, and universities uh, in Asia to try to at least keep up scientific channels for communication and, and possibly one day maybe plant material being shared even without us having to physically go there. They could possibly have students or, or staff go and collect plants for us and make it available for us to grow here. And that's such a great resource to be able to do those exchanges. So the climates between Washington, D.C. and the Mid-Atlantic and those parts of Asia, could you compare and contrast them and why their plants do so well for us and maybe vice versa? Yeah, absolutely. So when we're talking about the temperate regions that go around the globe, we're really looking specifically at zones basically five through nine. You could make it case for maybe six through eight is probably the larger swath of middle America that goes, you know, just 
south of New York to the Carolinas and, and, and broadly across America. But if you if you were to just add maybe five and nine as well, it's not quite tropical and it's not quite Arctic as well. Um, so they still have good periods of winter rest, followed by by summers that provide a good amount of rainfall and also a good amount of heat for growth as well. Um, so it, when you're looking at, at something like camellias, we're going to talk about today, due to some hybridization that happened at the National Arboretum in the early 90s and late 80s, which we'll, we'll talk about later, um, it now is able to grow from zones basically six through easily 9B. So that's really, in my opinion, the temperate portion of our country. And if you take, if you, so if you were to look at a global map and let's take one of the flat ones, or even if you had a globe, if you were to draw a line uh, latitudinally from the start of our zone five, the northern latitude of our zone five to the kind of the southern latitude of our zone nine and go all the way around the globe with that. A lot of Asia, especially China, Korea, and Japan, are going to be included in that band of temperate zones. And like I mentioned earlier, it's going to come into periods of rest for the plants in winter where, where the plants are going to be able to go into dormant periods, especially for perennials and woody species. Uh, and even rest is important for camellias and evergreen species as well, even though they do a lot of them do their flowering in the cold months. Those temperate regions is the vast majority of what we are going to garden with. You know, we might get to play with tropicals here as gardeners in the D.C. area during the summer, but we're going to have to protect them during the winter, take them inside. And, uh, the temperate stuff is going to be everything that can become hardy, winter hardy, and is tolerant of our heat as well. Um, and it's it, it's tough to give a full range heat-wise for the temperate zone, but you would be looking at kind of lows at the northernmost extremes and, you know, negative 10 to 15. Um, and in the southernmost extremes, kind of lows in the low 20s in the winter with varying summer heats, of course. Yeah, and we'll definitely have to talk about that low part of the camellias growing zone and how that impacted the history of camellias in Washington, D.C. And we'll get to that in a second. But first, I wanted to talk about the situation of being along the Anacostia River and how that affects the Asian Valley there. Does that give you maybe, I would say, one zone warmer, or do you think that has any impact in the growing zone there at the Arboretum? I would say you are absolutely correct in that, Kathy, that we definitely get at least a half a zone. And I would say in, in China Valley specifically, it would be a full zone. That's definitely the warm up from the water. And that's true of anyone that gardens near a large body of water. You know, if you look at the USDA hardiness zone maps, you know, around the Chesapeake Bay is always a half of a zone, if not a zone higher than, than an area that's just maybe 50 to 100 miles west. Um, and that's true of the Potomac River. And, and of course, the urban heat island effect of Washington, D.C. itself also gives us a warming effect, too. Even though we're kind of on the edge at the Arboretum of the city footprint, um, we still have New York Avenue to our north, especially the, the Asian collection. New York Avenue isn't too far away at all. And we have Hickey Hill Drive, which runs through the a portion of the collection. So, you know, we have some hardscapes that create, you know, some ambient heat. And then with the river, also, it, we, we definitely get a warm-up effect. I'm, I'm growing stuff out there, and it, some of it was planted well before my time. 
that if you were to look on his plant label, it says 8A, you know. So we're we're definitely getting away with, uh, we're spoiled. We get to grow a few extra things out there. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine because of the, the name Valley, that obviously there's dips and then there's southern facing sides that might be a little warmer and then there's the more hilly northern facing sides that might be a little more chilly and for those not familiar with the u.s national arboretum who might not have visited it yet in washington dc it is on a fair elevation it's it's one of the higher points of the city yes it is uh both mount hamilton um which don't quote me on this, but I, I believe I heard is one of the is number five or six top tallest points in the city. And then also Hickey Hill, which is the highest point coming in at the Asian collection, which is Hickey Hill Overlook, for those of you who aren't quite familiar, which would be the highest point of the collection. And then the Korean hillside sits below that. And then below that are these valleys that we're referring to, both China Valley and the Central Valley. And you make a very good point, Kathy, that the microclimates that those valleys offer, <laughs> we'll save as a kind term, uh, but really it is. Some of them are very beneficial. Some of them are very full sun and, and you need that for a plant and some give you some, some pockets of protection. And of course, if you want to stay away from some of the frost, then you've got some slopes that you can plant on away from the low points. So yeah, you know, a savvy gardener can make the most out of those ridges and slopes. And, and we're currently in the process of renovating well, I should say the Central Valley specifically, almost a full renovation, and the southernmost north-facing slope of China Valley is also, it was neglected for just a little while, uh, and is also going under a renovation, so it's going to create a lot of really fun opportunities to to play with some of those microclimates again. And if you haven't visited the National Arboretum, it would be a, a great time to visit well, while the camellias are in bloom, of course, but uh, and see what some of these renovations look like at a large public garden. Yeah, and I had the pleasure of going on a tour with you a few weeks ago with the Beltsville Garden Club and walking through and was amazed at the view down to the Anacostia that we are starting to see now because the obviously the leaves are falling off the trees and you guys are doing some cleanup work there and opening up that view. But I would say for the last decade or so of visiting, I had not seen the river from the Arboretum and didn't even realize how close it was on that side. You are so right. And, you know, just as a, to emphasize that point you just made, I was just doing a walkthrough with, with basically all of my bosses to, to show the progress and the renovation and, to, you know, show what the next steps were going to be. And, and uh, <laughs> one of the higher ups looked, down that valley and said, Oh my, I haven't seen that full of a river view, a riverscape in at least a decade. So that's, I think you nailed the timeline just about perfectly. I think it's been 10 years and, and, you know, it's, it was just one of those things that it's a very big collection and there were some other really pressing matters like getting China Valley really fully planted for a lot of years and established. And so, you know, it just kind of took changing the focus uh, of where some priorities were and it's really coming together nicely. And I think that I get, you know, I get chills still every day when I walk past that we have a garden club of America circle right there. They very generously paid for decades ago, but that's really the viewpoint that was meant to be from when they put that circle in was all the way down to the river. And it's really coming together and it's really going to be beautiful. We're going to, it's going to take a couple of years to, 
be able to reliably control what comes up because there were some nasty invasives down there, porcelain berry and phragmites and, you know, some of the really nasty culprits. But after those have now been removed, we can we can really get ahead of them with some pre-emergence and some post-emergence and uh, and then start to talk really big swaths of beautiful Asian perennial ground covers that will bloom three months through the year and waves and guide the eye down to the water. Exciting, exciting stuff. Wow, I'm looking forward to seeing that. And I was going to say for anybody who comes and visits the Arboretum, uh, we always refer to different gardens around the city as being these hidden gems. But I think that the Asian collection there is one of the hidden gems at the Arboretum because people just sometimes don't get that far. They get distracted by the Capitol Columns or Fern Valley. So they're like, oh, I didn't even know this whole thing was back here, but it's along a widening road. It is a bit of a walk. Yeah. From the main entrance, it's a hike. It's a bit of a walk from there. Yeah, it would be. If you were going to park at the R Street gates and walk all the way back, it would be a few miles, Mm -hmm. I believe. You know, it is the Olmstead brothers designed it as nine and a half circuitous miles of roadway. And you can go two different ways to get back to the Asian collection. I would, you know, I would guesstimate that either of them would take you two miles plus to walk there. And, you know, and and like you say, there's a lot of draws (laughs) when you first get there. You know, the columns, the National Bonsai Museum, and like you said, Fern Valley. And mm-hmm. there, there is. It's, uh, you know, it's it's a full roster of beautiful things to see at the Arboretum. Um, but you, and you're right. Once you make it all the way back, there are some real gems on the eastern end of the Arboretum, too. The Dogwood Collection, which abuts the Asian collections, and then the Gatelli Conifer Collection is, is one of my favorites. I interned there. So... Yeah, but um, we do have a parking area in the Asian collection if you are going to drive there, if you're a first-timer and aren't really fully uh, hip to the grounds. Uh, it, it parks about, I think, you know, a rough estimate. I think it's 10 cars. Um, and then on the top of the Hickey Hill Overlook, there is a, a bit of a parking lane up there where it widens, if you, if you don't mind walking down the hill. Uh, so those both work. And, and we just closed it down because it's the restroom is what they call seasonal since it's so far away from other structures. But, it, but during the warm weather months, spring through, we just closed it last week. There is a, there's restroom facilities out there as well. So, so that if, helps you venture further east. <laughs> <laughs> and that's good to know about the restroom because I was just going to mention that is one of the farther restrooms should you need it when you're visiting. Yeah. But good to know it is seasonal. So don't rely on that for that. That is not, it is winterized. So in the winter months, it is closed down. So uh, I try to remember to make a point of that. <laughs> <laughs> definitely wear some sturdy walking shoes because it is a sloped area. The terrain is very hilly and and I should say also, it, it unfortunately was made at a time uh, where ADA accessible wasn't as, as necessary as it absolutely should be. Um, and, and I can't speak necessarily to a timeline for it being ADA accessible, but it, it currently is not. And, and the terrain is, is fairly hilly. So just as an FYI. And it's gentle hills. I don't want to scare people. It is. It's, it is. it's not the Billy Goat Trail by any means. No. <laughs> no, no. And I don't want to scare folks either, but you're right. Yeah, it's gentle hills and, and stairs built into to most of them where it is a steeper grade. And, um, I will say China Valley is fully paved mm-hmm. from top to bottom. Uh, and the grade, it, it varies. 
So it, it is it is by far the most accessible portion of the collection. Hmm. And so when a visitor arrives and they would park at the parking area you, you described, they would go over to the left and there is a sign marking the Camellia collection. Yes, exactly. Um, it would be, it is the collection. There's a sign marking it. There's also a new sign um, uh, connotating we're part of the, uh, the Camellia Trail of the Ameri- American Camellia Society. Uh, so that is is almost it's a little brighter and more eye-catching than our our sign ours is a little bigger but that is the beginning of the trail to the camellia collection you can also enter from the dogwood collection as well uh it would be um just off of the paved trail section of the dogwood collection so there's two ways to get in there and then there's also uh just to the right of the ladies room in the restroom area there a some steps down also will lead you into the camellia collection. And so right now, many of them are in bloom and this is the time of year where they're kind of reaching their peak. What are your favorites among the collection currently? Oh, I have a couple that I really like. Winter's Water Lily is a National Arboretum introduction. Um, We'll talk about some of those introductions, but it's a beautiful white, semi-double peony form, uh, remarkably compact while being a stately sized plant about eight feet ours is by about six feet currently and really maybe four and a half inch across flowers just just absolutely breathtaking i'm a big fan of the winter series that was released by the national arboretum in the early 90s there's a few others that um were japanese cultivars that were used in some of the those hybridizations uh hiryu nishiki is a Camellia vernalis. Camellia vernalis is, if you look at its genetic parentage, is really just a hybrid of Camellia japonica, which is the spring blooming, and Camellia sisanqua, which is the fall blooming. And some of those hybridizations go back, you know, hundreds of years in Japan. So those are some very interesting colors that are offered in those flowers, you know, bicolor, both pink and white. Mm-hmm really playing with each other across the petals. And I do love how on some camellias, it's almost like a chimera where you get like a split face. Some of them will be like white with pink on one half and then maybe white sprinkled with pink on the other half. It's really interesting geometry to them. I I completely agree. Actually, Hiryu Nishiki, the Camellia Vernalis I mentioned just a moment ago is one of those uh, really a a fantastic plant that just every flower, you never know what you're going to get which is which is great fun. And you had mentioned that first one being compact at eight feet high and six feet wide. So uh, yeah, some of these <laughs> some of these camellias really can get big. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that I, I'm not sure everyone realizes when they're buying a three gallon plant. Not to say that there aren't some dwarf cultivars out there. Uh, Winter sunset is a beautiful variegated leaf form that that the National Arboretum introduced, I believe it was 1998. Um, And that is truly compact. You know, that plant's been in the ground since 1998. And I think it is five feet tall and maybe three to four feet wide. Um, And then there's some real dwarves, there's true dwarves as well. Um, But but when we talk about some of the winter series, we'll, we'll talk about from some of the hybridization, the Arboretum did in the late 80s after some very cold winters, tested the limits of camellias at this hardiness zone. Um, 
you know, some of those plants are 15, 20 feet tall by 12, 15 feet wide now in the garden. I mean, just very, very large landscape plants. And that is what the straight species of these, this genus will really wants to do as well. Sasanqua being smaller than Japonica, um, but you know, a native Camellia Sasanqua in Southern Japan, that's a, it's a 12, 13 foot tall plant, you know, seven, eight foot, maybe 10 foot widespread. These, these trees, the shrubs really can get very large in the landscape, but they can be pruned as well to keep them more reasonably sized. And, and they take pruning very, very well. Um, best to prune them right after they flower um, as they will start to set their buds for mm-hmm. the next season um, shortly after. There's, there's over 200 species, I do believe, of the genus Camellia and thousands of named cultivars and hybrids. So I don't want to intimidate anyone away from the genus. It's, it's amazing. It's a fantastic ornamental plant that has, you know, history of medicinal use and still has agricultural use to this day in parts of Asia. Um, so with all those cultivars, you know, there is a plant for you out there and there are fantastic nurseries that specialize in just camellias on the East coast as the camellia can trace its history of introduction to the East coast of America. So after we talk today, hopefully you'll be excited to get out there and find a camellia that will work for your garden as well. Definitely. And you know, there's always a principle of right plant, right place. So knowing that it's going to get to maybe six feet and having a pruning regimen in mind. And when you mention pruning, um, that you do it after it finishes blooming. So that could be what mid to late winter for some of them. So the ones we'll be talking about now, yeah, you really, what you want to do late winter to early spring. So a lot of what we're, we're going to be talking about Camellia sasanqua, Camellia oleifera, which is what a lot of the breeding was done with to make a lot of the hybrids we'll talk about today from the winter series and many of the fall winter blooming plants still hybridize with oleifera. When you do that pruning, you're not just doing a shearing, you're taking out whole branches or how do you recommend pruning, Matt? You know, for me in the collection, it's really about kind of managing margins between plants. And, and so sometimes it may be a whole branch and sometimes it may be a branch let. Well, sometimes it may be a, a very extreme pruning and going in and taking out an entire co-leader of the shrub from the bottom to allow it to fill in a little more over the next three to four years. But let's say you were using them as a foundation plant around your home or in a, a, a public space. You would want to go in and treat it more like a shrub where you would be looking for dead, diseased, dying branches, anything crossing. And then if you were going to be doing pruning for size, you would want to just be doing reduction cuts, looking for the next branch uh, union and pruning back to those. Great advice. And let's start with that Camellia sasanqua that's blooming right now and talk about that and maybe a little bit of the history of that at the Arboretum. Yeah, so it's really, I'm fortunate to get to work in a collection that has a, a great amount of history for camellias in this hardiness zone and, and for those growing them north of us in zone six as well. In the late 1970s, the U.S. National Arboretum had a, a very good-sized camellia collection, and there was a series of very harsh winters, uh, you know, getting well below negative zero, you know, down into the negative tens and negative teens for several years in a row, and it had a, a great impact 
on a large amount of the camellias that were planted in the collection. But a very wise plant breeder and, and uh, employee of uh, the National Arboretum and uh, out of our Beltsville breeding station as well in Maryland saw that there were a few that were not injured as that were Sasanquas, and then also most specifically that oleifera lushan snow the cultivar lushan snow from lushan botanic gardens in china was not damaged at all there was zero damage to that plant after all of those hard winters so being a plant breeder he said well this is where we start and he started to breed with oleifera with Sasanqua. And then started to bring in Vernalis, which, as I mentioned earlier, is already a crossing of parentage from Japonica and Sasanqua. Started to breed that in and also Hymalis as well, Camellia Hymalis. And with all of those different parentages, started to come up with what is known as the winter series now, which have been reliably tested to get into hardiness zone six or about negative 10 in a sheltered location. And you know, that really opened up the amount of people that could grow the camellia plant, you know, by thousands of households, if not, you know, I, I would hate to try to put a guess on quantifying it, but, you know, an entire extra hardiness zone of people now could grow them reliably. Uh, and that's the winter series. And it's most notable parentage is, like I mentioned, uh, camellia oleifera, Lucian snow, which still grows in the collection, the parent plant. Um and then Camellia sasanquas, which were already known as the fall blooming camellias. Vernalis, as the specific epithet alludes to, is typically a spring blooming plant. Uh, but with parentage going from the oleifera and, excuse me, and sasanqua, they were able to bring in some of those Vernalis that were more fall blooming in nature. So through all that parentage came things like Winter's Charm and Winter's Rose and Snow Flurry, Winter's Hope, Winter's Interlude. You can see why the Winter series is part of the name. The majority of them start with Winter. Um, but these plants give blooms from, you know, I would say the first one started blooming in the collection, you know, a couple, maybe a week before I gave the tour to beltsville garden club that you were on kathy and maybe two weeks and 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 we're just now starting to really hit their stride with this weather has been really fortunate it's kind of warm days and cold nights so last year it was every bit of the early february and then very shortly after camellia japonica late march started to bloom so it's Really, if you were going to use a variety of the cultivars, you could have blooms from October right through April to early May using a variety of the Sasanqua hybrids and also the Japonicas. So <clears throat> the Sasanqua specifically are really going to be your fall-winter workhorse. Oleifera is really known more for its bark and its, its white flowers that uh, are, are fairly easily shattered, which means, you know, the, the they, they break apart fairly easy in weather. But the parent plant of Lushan Snow, which has been growing in the collection for decades now, you know, it's been blooming for maybe six weeks. So even the straight species offers just a ton of interest. Hmm. And that was the work of Dr. William Ackerman. 
That was. If I didn't if I didn't say his name earlier, excuse me, Dr. William Ackerman, yeah. And some people know him as Bill Ackerman, and he has written what is really the Bible of camellias. And I think I'm not sure of the price right now on Amazon for that book, but treasure it if you have it. <laughs> very true. Yes. There is a actually there's an there is a copy at the Arboretum that is pretty dog-eared. So I think it's our last one that gets shared <laughs> around a bit. Uh, but, you know, some people actually, instead of calling them the winter series, some people call them the Ackerman hybrids. Mm-hmm. I do hear that a lot. and yep. Or they'll say, obviously, Arboretum introduction, because they'll yeah. know that it's one of those that are past that really cold series and that they're safe to be planted here. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of people look for that, actually, when... And, when looking for a cold hardy camellia, something out of the USNA introduction line of camellias. Mm-hmm. And are any of them scented or highly scented, or would you even notice that in the winter time? You know, I, I've yet to come across any in the winter series that are, are highly fragrant. If any, I think personally, Winter Sunset has a little bit. This is one that was introduced a bit later in 1998. And I mentioned it earlier. It's got a beautiful variegated leaf kind of yellow and glossy green. Um, and I think that it has a slight, slight fragrance to it. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the the leaves or the foliage. So most camellias are considered to be evergreen and not deciduous for our area, correct? Yes, yes. That's another one of the great parts of them being a four-season plant, in my opinion, is that, that, that really glossy evergreen foliage allows for you know, to be used as a foundation planting, as a specimen plant, you know, front and center, maybe in the middle of a, a bed of perennials that are going to die back and you need something of interest for the rest of the year. Um, and then it's going to flower for you when, when nothing else is typically flowering, especially the Sasanqua hybrids and, and fall winter blooming. And because it's so late blooming in the season, do you see any pollinators using it? Yeah, we see yellow jackets on a lot of them, believe it or not. And you'll also see late season native uh, bumblebees. And, and, you know, we have, you know, we just have a a plethora of native bees that are singular bees and not colony bees in this area. And I I am not as good at identifying them all, but you see a variety of sizes of bees as well. And then uh, there's one specifically, a cultivar Agnes O'Solomon, which is right off the parking lot walking down into the Central Valley. Uh, and it, just two years in a row now, just covered in yellow jackets and nothing aggressive. You know, they're typically not the friendliest insect, but they are just filling up on some late season bit of the pollen or nectar, something you don't see them feeding on typically during the rest of the year. So I need to look into more of the science behind that. Hmm. Yeah, because I would say that that would stretch your garden's viability for wildlife and, you know, attracting it, of course, because some of them go and also rebloom or bloom in their cycle in late winter, early spring, then you're catching some of them as they just emerge and are really desperate for that pollen and nectar. Absolutely. Yeah. So some of the early blooming japonicas are what people really look for too. those to, to get, flowers in the garden as early as possible for for both pollinators and aesthetics yeah Mm. and you had touched on a bit earlier the culinary uses of camellia so let's talk about that tea plant and i am drinking a cup of lady gray right now 
And so I'm a big tea fan. Yeah, this morning. Yeah. So Camellia Sinensis, that's how I like to start a lot of the tours uh, is, you know, is anyone a tea drinker? And, and inevitably, several people raise their hand because behind water, it's the most consumed beverage in the world. Last I checked, several million people a day. Or no, excuse me. I think it's 2.1 billion people a day mm-hmm. are, are known tea drinkers. Um, so, it, yeah, Camellia sinensis is where tea comes from. And it has been farmed in both China and Japan for centuries. Emperor Nung, I believe it was 1700 BC, is when you really start to see the written record of tea being drank at court and being start to be known as a, a sacred beverage. And there's interesting mythology behind it that uh, you know I wouldn't want to put any absolute fact behind but there's a there is a myth that the emperor was laying by a river and they were boiling his water for consumption because as we all know it's much safer to boil your water uh, before modern plumbing so and, and into that boiling cauldron of water fell a leaf or two from the plant above and that plant above was a camellia sinensis and from this beverage he and received you know a spirit of mind and body that he had never encountered before and you know hence was supposedly the first written record of caffeine consumption but uh so it has a really long history in in asian cultures and then thanks to the dutch east india trading company and around 1600 and those trade routes tea started to become known to the western world as well uh you know i don't want to put an exact date but the 1650s in london it started to become you know a, a more common drink and and from there, I mean, I think we we I think most listeners would would know of even America's history with tea from the Boston Tea Party and and then America went to coffee almost specifically because of that and not <laughs> not specifically, but that was a, a factor. And then tea continued to be popular in other parts of the world and has had a huge resurgence in popularity in the last several decades. Um, and it is all thanks to Camellia sinensis and. We still have tea plantations here in America. Uh, South Carolina, most notably, still houses the largest and most prolific. Uh, and, and I believe California is still on record for some some smaller scale tea plantations as well. Tea farms, I really should say. Um, I think they still market themselves as South Carolina tea plantations. So. Mm-hmm. And so if you wanted to grow your own tea and you had one of those growing in your garden, uh, it's still not an easy process. There, there's still a bit of drying and aging to the tea leaves. There is, and I am no expert, I should say, first and foremost. But yes, it is about harvesting while they're young. And there is, a you know, the different amount of time that you age that leaf is the different type of tea that you're going to produce. So green tea, obviously, is going to be, well, white tea actually might be the youngest but I, I believe it's green tea is the younger and black tea is obviously the older in the aging process white tea does fall in there i think it might be between green and black um and yeah and you would have to dry that and and if you would you wanted to do just like a straight tea blend you would chop those leaves and steep them in water and uh, if you would want to blend them with something more herbal, like some of the blends today, you could take those leaves with other dried herbs. And, and yeah, we grow Mrs. Henry is a cultivar that's commonly sold of Camellia sinensis. Uh, 
it is growing in a very, very shaded spot and puts on very little growth for us every year. But there's two flushes typically of new leaf growth in the season. And from what I understand, if you pick them, you can get three. Uh, and, and they use huge harvesting machines. They grow them almost in hedges. You know, earlier you asked about, you know, can you shear them? Well, technically, yes, you absolutely can. You know, they are a shrub that will take to it because that's how they harvest sinensis. It's a big machine that sits over the hedgerow and cuts all the new leaves basically off from the top and maybe the sides as well. There's some very interesting pictures online to look at, look at tea harvester. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you talk about that shearing and hedging, I have seen some neighbors who do use camellias as hedging and or little meatballs that they shear it into. <laughs> and you still get blooms. You're, you're not cutting off all the blooms, but it's just not the most attractive form of the plant. Couldn't agree more. I, I really am a, a fan of letting a plant get to the habit it wants to. It really it looks best. And then, you know, maintenance pruning around that. Hmm. And since we're talking about consuming camellia, are there other ways that it's edible or can be used by a consumer? Absolutely. And, and, and is very much so in, in Southern China specifically. So we were talking about camellia oleifera, which is commonly in that part of the world known as the oil seed camellia. And we looked a little bit of that on one of the plants on our tour, Kathy, and I showed you the seeds that came out of the, the large seed husk. And those seeds are mm -hmm. collected and pressed for a cooking oil. And also that oil is also used for aesthetic purposes uh, in Japan and Korea, from what I understand, as well as a cooking oil. Um, but it, it can't be overstated its significance in, in cooking for Southern China. Hundreds of millions of people, from what I've read, still use it as a cooking oil. Uh, very uh, medium in its uh, burn point and lightly fragrant, uh, almost with a little bit of a smell of tea is what they say. Tea oil is also another common name for it and its cooking applications there, um, but still very much used to this day. Used, it was more prevalent previously, but as more oils have come to the scene, uh, it has started to share its market, of course, but still very much used to this day. And, and I'm sure you could buy it in an Asian market here in North or in, you know, in our area. Hmm. Yeah. We'll have to look out for that in some of our Asian grocery stores and check yeah. that out. Yeah. And, and I know that the Japanese it's Subaki T S U B A K I is the name uh, for the plant and, and, and the oil that they use for uh, like aestheticians and for skincare and stuff. So. Hmm. Very interesting. Lots of uses for this genus of plants from, from, you know, one of the most widely consumed beverages to cooking oils to the ornamental side. It's very versatile genus. Mm -hmm. And let's turn to a little bit about the plant care. And if we wanted to plant one in our garden, where we would situate it versus full sun to shade in that spectrum? And then at what time of year is the ideal time to plant a camellia? Sure thing. So, you know, I'll address the second first. And, and I think that the ideal time to plant anything woody is the fall. You know, it's, it's just a matter of stress on the plant, in my opinion, and the amount of work that you're going to have to do as a gardener to ensure that that plant establishes successfully. So if we just think about temperature stresses, 
if you, let's say you plant in the spring or summer, you know, you're going to have to worry about that temperature increasing and you're going to have to worry about watering that plant throughout the season. Whereas if you plant in the fall, whereas the temperature is going to be steadily decreasing and plants are going to be going into a rested state, uh, even a camellia, which will be doing some, depending on the species, of course, but will be doing some blooming right after you plant it. Uh, it will still be much better off with the cooler temperatures and you'll be able to water it in just a couple of times, you know, once of course at planting and then checking back on it if there hasn't been any steady rain. Um, but then it goes into the winter and the ground, you know, it used to freeze in the Washington DC area reliably, but uh, last couple of winters have been warm. But anyhow, usually the, the soils cool down to a temperature that's just much more conducive on the root ball establishing. Uh, and then you get your great spring rains. And by the time summer rolls around again, that plant's got a, a good root establishment going and is no longer going to feel that summer stress the way it would have had you planted it, you know, March to June or something. It, it, and while we're speaking that, I, I would never plant a woody plant or a perennial plant or anything between June and August, even early September in this area. It's just, you're going to be dragging a water can or a water hose to it you know, every few days and the plant's not going to be happy and you're not going to be happy. So just like right plant, right place. I really think that right planting time makes a big difference, especially in the, the maintenance side of things. Uh, but with tree success and shrub success and establishment too. So, and then to be specific with camellias, you know, this is another plant that is just, it makes it a little easier on us. It will take shade, part shade, I should say, you know, they're not going to do very well in full, full shade, but part shade to full sun. Uh, it would prefer a little bit of morning shade if it was going to be in a part shade situation. So you could, you know, you could, uh, could orient it against a, a, a Western facing wall so that it's got some morning sun and then gets a good full afternoon, uh, excuse me, morning shade and full afternoon sun. Um, but if you if you have a, a partial shade spot in your garden, then it will work as well. If, as you saw on our walking tour, the camellia collection kind of goes back and forth between shady woodland canopy and then some open spots as well. And, and all the ca camellias in, in both of those areas do very, very well. Um, you would definitely, like I said earlier, want to avoid full shade. Um, but really, it's it's you're going to get a full set of blooms on, on both partial shade and full sun. Um, if I was to choose in my own yard, I would probably go full sun if I had the space for it, just because you, you will get a little better growth. Hmm. And I always hear the advice, Matt, that you should give camellias protection from the wind. Can you describe that? And do you think that's good advice? Yeah, I do. You know, especially with stuff we're talking about blooming in fall, winter, where you're going to get cold winds uh, and, and you can get a good amount of flower loss as well. Just from, like I said, a lot of them are easily shattered flowers. So a strong wind can take a lot of those flowers off the plant. Um, and then also, yeah, you know, talking about microclimates, you know, a stiff Northwestern exposure to prevailing winds before they get like a tree break or something can definitely, can definitely slow down a plant's blooming and also can, can, uh, damage root systems as well if they're not properly protected and i would say properly protecting through mulch uh or or, or you know planting a, a break line of shrubs or plants around them to mm -hmm. kind of cut that wind a little yeah i always hear that you should plant it near a brick wall that that's 
gives it a little bit of extra warmth and a little bit of protection too. Absolutely. The protection and definitely the ambient warmth as well. Anything near a foundation, you know, anytime I'm pushing something that's marginally hardy in this area at home, I definitely want to plant it near the foundation of my house because, you know, your, your house or, or a building as a whole mm-hmm. is just going to stay warmer and, and give off some ambient heat. And, I, and, you know, when gardening at Smithsonian Gardens in the Enid A. Hop Garden, you know, the the head horticulturist there would often, you know, push the boundaries to 8B sometimes by planting stuff on a southern facing wall and get away with it for several years until a really hard or really harsh winter would come along. Mm-hmm. And knock on wood that we don't get one of those harsh winters this year. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> just enough snow to be pretty once or twice is, is about perfect. For exactly. Me. And then just melt by noon. That's what yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah. Just go away. Um, so we should probably talk a little bit too about uh, camellia pests and diseases. Anything that we should be looking out for on our plants? You know, they, they have a, a, a small list of possibilities. They, they do have some viruses and fungal diseases such as dieback and they can get the occasional canker or flower blight and I have seen root rot as well but really it's been very rare in the camellia collection as a whole um, and you know if you were going to have a single specimen plant in another highly planted garden that where maybe you do see some aphids or scale perhaps occasionally maybe even a plant hopper spider mites you know coming from you know maybe spider mites coming from an indoor plant taken outside or something for the season you know, I would just keep an eye if they're going to be close because they can be, communities can be susceptible to those pests. But usually, you know, with a little scouting, it's usually not as big of an infestation that can't be just taken care of by hand, maybe a little neem oil. Um, if you do start to see dieback or cankers and, you know, much like I would recommend with a rhododendron or azalea, I would say cut out the affected branches, you know, kind of your three D's of pruning, dead, diseased, dying always get those out of the plant as soon as possible. And, and often you can stave off a further fungal or bacterial infection that way. And I have to ask, well, not while that we're talking about pests and diseases, I always get the question of, is it deer resistant? Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. I have so many deer in that collection. Unfortunately, being right next to the river, and occasionally a tree will fall down on the fence line and, you know, deers will get in and, I have seen, I hate to admit it, a small herd of deer walk right through the camellia collection, munching on herbaceous perennials that are starting to emerge or something else I don't want to see them eating, but just walk right past camellias, blooms, leaves. You know, that that uh, glossy, fairly serrated leaf is just not very, not very uh, appealing to them. So I have never seen damage. Now, I will say deer rub could be an issue on a larger shrub where maybe there is an exposed large trunk. You can maybe get some rub, but as far as predation eating, I've, I've yet to see any damage. That's great news. Cause yeah, so much of what we want to grow, especially ornamental collections seems to be deer candy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's tough. You know, it's, I mean, whole lists have been built around what's, you know, what those buggers won't eat. <laughs> Let's talk in our last few minutes about some more of those favorite plants and maybe some unusual ones in that camellia collection. What's something that a visitor coming to it would see that they might not see in another camellia collection? 
You know, I know I, I hate to hammer on it, but Lushan Snow is really worth uh, a gander. The, the original parent plant is situated in the Central Valley. If you were to use the U.S. National Arboretum's uh, app, and there's a search, a plant finder tool on there, and you could just put Camellia Lushan Snow, which is L-U-S-H-A-N Snow is S-N-O-W. Um, and it would show you on a map where that plant is. And it's 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 a magical plant. It's 25 feet tall, 25, 30 foot spread. It is in bloom right now. Still got some blooms on it, but a beautiful cinnamon colored bark. Uh, almost overhanging the path. It's really a great tree. And you won't see that. I say tree because of its size, but shrub. Um, and you really won't see Lucian Snow outside of, especially that size. The Arnold Arboretum might have one. No, they won't. Sorry. They're, they're, they're way too cold. Uh, Morris Arboretum, I should say, might have one. But not of that size, I doubt. Um, and there, a lot of the USNA introductions that, you know, they definitely have been marketed around but it's tough to find plants that are the same size as ours to really see what their full potential can be because you know they were planted in this garden as part of the trial so uh pink icicle is really one of my favorites and this is a, a compact growth plant you know maybe five feet tall uh it's a large peony form you know I've, I've been talking so much i didn't even really talk about the six different shapes of flowers for camellias which are single semi-double anemone form, peony form, rose form, and then formal double. Uh, and within anemone and peony and rose, sometimes you'll have double forms now as well. But as far as the winter blooming, it, there are pink icicle is a real favorite. Snow flurry is another favorite. It's an anemone form. It's, it's a little bit more of a spreading growth. Winter's cupid. It's a beautiful semi-double, kind of white with like a little bit of a flush pink at its apex. That's another really favorite. Winter's Fire, to get away from the white and pink. It's a, it's a, it's a really a, a more red bloom, which I think this time of year is just striking. Plus around the holidays, having a red flower in the garden, I think is just really neat. Winter's Joy is another really favorite. It's uh, it's really upright in its growth. I wouldn't say pyramidal, but but very columnar. Mm -hmm. uh, winter snowman is one that I know was blooming when you were there, uh, and it's got the semi double flower and really large plant, maybe twenty, uh, fifteen foot by fifteen foot. I was gonna say, Matt, that I'm really glad you talked about the different flower definitions. Because they are so different looking, especially the open one where you see all the yellow stamens in the middle yeah. with the single petal ones versus the peony. And I have to say that my personal taste runs to the peony-like and the really rose-like or filled-in doubles. Um, what is your personal preference? Do you like the open ones better? Those actually are my, my, my same. I really love you know the botanical structure of the singles. You can really just see how the plant evolves. Mm -hmm. uh, but... But what do I have planted at home is the peony form and a rose form. So <laughs> I really, I really enjoy that flower coming out so full uh, and, and, and mimicking really that rose or peony shape before there's, before there's a rose or peony blooming in the garden. So mm -hmm. that's. And we should note they make great cut flowers. So if you want to make a arrangement for your holiday table, 
you know, there's Yuletide is a great red one. Um, And that one is especially popular this time of year with florists. Absolutely is. Yeah. And I've seen them used in, I don't, you know, I, I, maybe just not me paying as much attention when I was younger, but I've seen them use increasingly more in the last few years too, it seems like. So mm-hmm. that's, it's, it is a great, great little bonus to a, a, a bouquet. Mm-hmm. I'll even see them, uh, maybe they're just growing them from cuttings and having them as a small plant, as a gift plant. And I don't think people realize that they're hardy. You know, sometimes you'll see the florist yeah. azaleas and florist hydrangeas treated the same way where they're greenhouse grown. Yeah. And I'm seeing camellias done that way more and more. And I'm kind of concerned. Because, that is, yeah, yeah. That, is, that is never a good trend to be throwing away uh, woody perennial plants mm-hmm. after they're if you think they're just a single bloom. Yeah, I agree. That's uh, true too, because you know, these, I, we didn't really talk a lot about propagation, but very often as root cuttings, these will bloom second year after being planted. So yeah, I can see why they've maybe greenhouse growers have tried that trend out because they are easily, uh, they're, they're very precocious and they're flowering. And so when we talk about propagating or taking cuttings, what's the best time of year to do it? And they obviously would come true from a a cutting, but if you collected seeds, they wouldn't come true, correct? They they would not. They are not going to be true to seed. It'd be a very rare chance that 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 seed came true to one of the parent plants. So yeah, root cuttings. uh, And then the best time for me would be late winter, early spring. Really, so right right before the, the roots are really getting ready to start going again, get them in a propagation soil media, and then uh, the time of year where their roots really want to start growing is right as they are uh, introduced into their new potted home. Hmm. And probably keep them in a pot for a couple years and then plant them out? Yep. You would want to pot them up. Personally, I like to step them up at least two or three times before I get them out into the garden. I want to be sure that they have a good, really established root ball and root system that uh, is going to establish itself quicker in the landscape. So, you know, maybe at the smallest four quart, I'd want it to be a four quart pot. Probably I'd aim for more like a three gallon. So you want really good uh, root development before putting them in the ground. Yeah. Now, not to say that you couldn't get it established, you couldn't get it rooted as a cutting and maybe pot it up, get it into a, a small pot and pot it up one time and then put it in the garden and just give it some real extra TLC. You know, often when I'm putting plants out into the camellia collection, you know, this last planting was, I think we put 30 or 40 camellias out and I want them all to be of a good enough size that that I know that they have uh, what it takes to, to make it in the garden without getting too babied. But if I was at home and I had the time to TL, give them some TLC, I, I would plant a smaller plant. Hmm. And do camellias ever air layer, like put down a branch and then propagate from that? Not as readily as rhododendron and azalea. Mm-hmm. No. Now, now, if you were to hold a branch down and put a rock on it, and give it a few years, it could very well form some adventitious roots there. But, you know, like with a rhododendron and an azalea, you could do it and probably six months later have a brand new plant. Um, not quite as readily, but but being that it's an evergreen shrub, it does have uh, adventitious roots, you know, under at any point under the bark if it's buried for long enough. Hmm. 
Well, that's a little tip there at home. If you, the lazy man's way of propagating, yeah. I call it. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's always worth a try if you have a long enough branch to, to try it out with. Yeah, absolutely. I'm all about creating as many plants as you can for yourself for free. Mm-hmm. So any final advice for camellia growing, Matt, especially for the mid-Atlantic area? Yeah, you know, you want to think kind of along the same lines as rhododendron as far as soil type. So you want to be a little more on the acidic side. Um, you want to, it really, this this area, Mid-Atlantic's pretty perfect for it. Our clay soils do really well. They don't have to be too amended because uh, they kind of tend to the more neutral to acidic. And those weathered clay soils are are pretty representative of some of the regions that the plant comes from natively. So it's, you know, I would say you can do a little bit of fertilization in the fall winter type of thing with a holly tone style fertilizer. And, you know, aside from that, it's just about proper planting, making sure that you're inspecting that root ball before you put the plant in the ground and you're checking for girdling roots checking to make sure there's no real root defects in the root ball. Don't be scared to pull the plant out of the pot at the nursery. Really find that root flare on the trunk and make sure that there's, you know, no, no root conditions that have arose during its container growing. It's pretty common. In fact, I would say that's one of the number one reasons that trees and shrubs fail in the landscape is from just not doing a little due diligence with the roots before you plant. Better to plant high than low, you know, plant proud, I think is the, the terminology people are using these days. So, you know, better for the top inch of that root ball to stick up over the grade than for it to be below grade. Um, and aside from that, you know, the camellias are really easy plants to grow, in my opinion. They are very gardener friendly and they will just absolutely uh, reward you with blooms in the time of year where your gardener spirits need them the most. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Matt, for all that great advice. And I will be planting a camellia today and I will be planting it proud. Well, that sounds fantastic. And I'm happy for both you and that camellia. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen, Terry Spite, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space, while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. The Urban Garden, 101 Ways to Grow Food and Beauty in the City, comes out this spring. You can pre-order it now at Amazon.com and Bookshop.org.
Hardy Orange Plant Profile Hardy Orange, Ponceris trifoliata, is a large shrub that is famous for its sharp thorns and sour citrus fruits. It makes an excellent hedge and should be placed away from any high traffic areas in your landscape. It is hardy to zones 4 to 9 and originates in China. The leaves fall off in autumn and reveal a dramatic interior of spiny dark green stems. Hardy orange prefers a full sun location, but it can take some shade. It also prefers acidic, well-draining soils. It can grow to 15 feet high and wide. Once established, it is drought tolerant. The small fruits ripen in fall and are full of seeds and the juice is lemon-like. It can be used to make a marmalade, but is generally treated more as an ornamental fruit than an edible one. The Flying Dragon cultivar has beautiful twisting branches and is available by mail order or at local independent garden centers. Prune it carefully when needed by wearing thick leather gloves and eye protection. You can take stem cuttings to propagate it or try your luck at planting the seeds. Hardy Orange, you can grow that. What's going on in the garden this week? Well, our radishes are finally getting to harvestable size, so we'll be digging a few of those up in the next few days. In my own home garden, I'm running around planting everything I can into the ground that is still in pots. That's mostly small shrubs and perennials that I never got to this fall. So trying to get those in before the winter ground freeze. In local garden events at the U.S. National Arboretum, there is a Christmas tree sale happening the weekend of December 11th and 12th from 10 to 4 p.m. And that's at the Newark Avenue entrance. And when you go to that, if you go on Saturday, December 11th, you can also visit the Procrastinators Holiday Market there. That's Saturday only. And that includes local vendors with family-friendly arts and crafts and free holiday train rides. That sounds like a lot of fun. Speaking of trains, over in Baltimore at the Rawlings Conservatory, they are hosting their Back on Track holiday show. And you'll need to go to the Rawlings Conservatory website to get time tickets for that. Over in Alexandria, Virginia, at George Washington's Mount Vernon, they're doing their annual Mount Vernon by Candlelight. And you can sign up for that online for tickets. That's every weekend up through December 19th. And you don't want to miss a Longwood Christmas. So that's up in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. Check out longwoodgardens.org for all the details on that. It goes through January 9th, and that's daily. And that includes lighting in the garden, the beautiful conservatory displays, and outdoor fire and ice theme is just looking beautiful this year. And again, there's a garden railway for you to check out. Happy gardening! Thank you for listening to Garden DC. 
You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash gardendc slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.